This podcast is sponsored by Logos Bible Software. If you've been longing for the tools to take your Bible study deeper, you need to try out Logos. I've been personally using Logos for over a decade now for both my devotional and pastoral study. Right now, Logos has partnered with the Kingdom Dreamers to bring you exclusive savings. Check out at logos.com forward slash Kingdom Dreamer or click the link in the show notes for our exclusive offer. I have a dream. I'm staggered by the winds of police brutality. Now, you have been the veterans of creative suffering. The ballot or the bullet is to either ignore them or, or to deny them without And we stand together to win the war. One small step for man. Yes, we can. There we go. Welcome, everybody, everyone, wherever you listen to uh, to this lovely episode of either Wild Wild World or Rick's podcast, which I honestly just forgot the name of. Rick, <laughs> jumping through hoops. There we go. I almost said hoops to Jason. That's another show I listened to. I was like, no, that ain't it. Jumping through hoops. Um, thank you. My man, Rick Williams, for, for hopping on, chopping it up with me here. Um, glad to have you on. Glad to be on your show as well. So, uh, you know, for those listening, Rick and I, you know, we have been talking about some things, and I'll, I'll explain who Rick is here in a second. For those that don't know, and he'll explain who I am in a second for those that don't know. And we just wanted to continue the conversation that we are starting to have uh, here on these airways because it's one that's going on worldwide not just nationally, worldwide, uh, over the past couple of weeks with the, the death of uh, people like George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, Maud Arbery. The world has kind of been in flux right now. And so we wanted to take an opportunity to, to talk, share some um, thoughts, ideas, experiences, uh, and really bring it uh, out here in public because we think we got some things to say. So, Rick, how you doing today, my man? I'm doing great, man. I'm doing great. I've been... Uh... I've been in learning mode these past couple of days, and uh, I think that's where we all should be. You know, I've just been trying to understand the world from as many perspectives as I possibly can, while at the same time, you know, contributing my own perspective. Um, right. You know, because we all are, we all are our own experiences, right? Um, Definitely. But, you know, I, I just, I just am really looking forward to having a conversation. You know, that's that's one of the most powerful things we can do. It's just mm-hmm. talk to one another. Um, understand one one another make sure we're listening to each other and kind of work these muscles out right i always say you can't you can't get any stronger if you only lift the weight that you can already lift right if you you got a you got a 10 pound weight and you lifted it you're not doing anything you know right. in order to get stronger you got to get those muscles uncomfortable you got to get to the to those pounds that you can't lift you know right so yeah, that's how i look at these conversations man let's just get uncomfortable but let's get better most definitely. I, I like the plug there. Let's get better. Uh, so for, for, for my listeners, Wild Wild World listeners that are checking us out, just so y'all know, because y'all like, oh, this cool. This, this brother Rick sounds like he know what he's talking about. Um, she might be asking, who is Rick? And so just so y'all know, Rick is, uh, my connection initially with Rick is that he is the uh, head coach. Well, I, actually, Rick, I don't want to step on toes, but he was the head coach of the AAU basketball team that my oldest son, Quentin, 
played on, always get better. Now that is folded into another organization. Um, but Rick is still the head coach. When Rick told me, hey, look, I'm going to be making this power move, joining all in this other organization. Um, I said, hey, Rick, well, we're with you. You know, I'm entrusting my child's basketball um, future on some level to you because even in, you know, the the, the times we've met, I, I respected Rick enough to say, look, we're rolling with you, right? Um, but beyond that, Rick, I, I know you're not just – uh, the basketball coach uh, always get better with all in. I know you're also uh, the AD at Elgin Academy. And I don't know if you want to give like a brief rundown of just where you're coming from, or, or who you are, so the folks know. Um, just kind of, you know, what, what your history is. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, look, let me just say, first of all, uh, you know, when I started AGB in 2011, 2012, we started it with eight kids, mm. you know, mainly from one neighborhood. And then uh, over time, it just expanded and expanded because of parents like yourself, parents who, who gave us a try. And then when they gave us a try, they then were kind enough to go tell other people about us, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that's how we grew. We grew very organically from eight kids to 250 kids at our peak in uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was all done organically, not a lot of advertising from my part, just pe other people saying, hey, this program cares about every kid the entire thing is focused on development right helping people get better at not only the game but also life um and then you know q came on board and ever since he's come on board we've just been we just been so excited and then the move the move was all done for family reasons man you're a family man you understand that right oh yeah you know i got a three-year-old son i have a one-year-old baby girl uh, and Ooh, you blessed but, to still be standing bro yeah. <laughs> And uh, and like you said, I also you know I'm an athletic director at a school, um, and so between what I'm doing career-wise, what I'm doing family-wise, running a full basketball training club was just too much. So mm -hmm. I decided if you're going to do something, I want to do what I'm doing very well. Right. So in order to do the AD thing well, in order to do the dad thing well, we got to get rid of the other thing. Um, but yeah. but Kellen, it's important that we understand that. AGB was more than just a basketball program for me. It really was a, um, an extension of who I am as a person. And that's, that's a good baseline for this conversation, right? Anyone who's gonna listen to me today, if I say something that you don't agree with or that you're frustrated by, how can a black man say that? You've got to <laughs> the, the base of who I am yeah. is always, right? Always get better. Like mm -hmm. no matter what the situation, it's all about improving from a day-to-day -day basis that's that's just kind of like my soul that's the core of who i am so um you know that's that went with the core of who i am uh was pretty easy pretty successful no and that's rather that and one thing i always loved was was that name you know and, and that mantra I always get better because i mean you know whether it's as a husband as a father and you're chosen uh field of work or maybe the field of work that chose you whatever you're doing there's always improvement that can be made there and, and as you mentioned, making those moves because, you know, you're a family man, prioritizing things, you know, is something that I, you, most men and women probably that have families, you've had to do at some point. You got to prioritize and say, look, what is important? I know even myself, you know, I, I, I enjoy coaching. I love coaching, but because of things I had going on in our family, you know, I said, hey, I got to take a step back from coaching for a little bit because I want to prioritize being a father and a right. husband you yeah. know so um you know we were just talking about our relocation it's killing me because i said okay I, you know i'm gonna step away from coaching for a year 
<laughs> you know, um, because I want to make sure that I'm, you know, here for my for my child. You know, as they play different sports, I want to be there to be able to uh, participate, support them. But, um, but thank you for that background, though, Rick. So that you know, any Wild Wild World listeners, you know, because we're gonna record, we're gonna probably have a. Uh, parts of this conversation on both feeds on jumping through hoops as well as wild wild world so um you know so if sometimes i might be talking to the wild wild world folks so the jumping through hoops folks really i'm talking to all y'all because hopefully by the end of this all y'all are intertwined so if you listen if you're a normal wild wild world listener go ahead and subscribe like download tell your friends about rate jump through hoops i'm gonna give you that plug i know you didn't ask for it but I'll give you that plug <laughs> because it is a dope show. Like I, this is not me blowing smoke. Um, I didn't even know you had the podcast, and then you told you said, "Yeah, I got this podcast." I went and I listened to all. I think it's like seven episodes you have right at the moment yeah, within good. like three days. Um, part of it is because look, I just like I like ball. I care about ball. Yeah. I also have a son that, as we mentioned, that's playing. Um, so I'm intrigued, but it's also just well done. Um, so I appreciate that. So definitely check it out. Uh, if you're listening to this on the wild, wild world feed, go ahead and subscribe to that and check that out. Um, so I'm gonna get that out there before we get <laughs> deeper into this conversation. Let me do mine then. I got to cross <laughs> man. Wild, wild world is like, was a, what I liked about it right away when you told me about it. Is, and I thought it was in our lane because even though our lane is basketball, it's still basketball done with a success mindset, right? We're trying to help people. Mm-hmm. Ooh, help people get better when i listen to you guys chop it up you and your co-host that's what i hear i hear two 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 people trying to offer perspective to people that helps them in their lives you know what i'm saying and, yeah. and i think that if, especially now that we're home you know we all got time on our hands you know i think we should be looking to learn something every day and the podcast medium is just such a great way to do that because you can you know do your chores you can go for your run you can get your exercise in while you're learning you know right um, that's positive in nature and very honest, man. That's what I appreciate about you guys' conversation. It's very honest, man. Just straightforward. Pull no pressure. We try. Hoops fans, go check out Wild Wild Work uh, for good, kind of uh, good, honest conversation designed to help help us all get better. Um, so yeah, that's the backdrop of why we decided to cross talk, right? Because it's like, look, we're both trying to help, and right. there's so much going on in the world right now mm-hmm. that us being two brothers, but with slightly I would assume slightly opposing views on <laughs> possibly, possibly, you know, we like like we said, th- this is going to be real organic because we haven't really talked about it. You know, look, I- I'll just go behind the curtain a little bit. We were having a little a little family talk with the team, and mm-hmm. we mentioned a couple things about what was going on in the world, and Rick, you know, just kind of mentioned some things, and I told him, I said, yeah, like I'm in agreement, but I think I might be a little bit more on the radical side of things, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> and so we said, okay, let's talk. So, I, so just so y'all know, we haven't really revisited it, so we're having this conversation. Um, here now at this moment, so we're gonna see where it goes because uh, you know I, I I am a little bit radical, um, but you know you talk about background that's that's part of my background too. I mean, just so y'all know, um, I mean I grew up in Minneapolis, in South Minneapolis, so where George Floyd was murdered, he was murdered in front of a store that I frequented dozens, dozens, dozens of times as a kid, cut foods, right on a on a on a corner that. I passed or was on, if not daily, multiple times a week, you know, from the time I was like 13 and up when I was out out and about living my life, right? So like, this is my old neighborhood. And not only that, but I'm the son of uh, of a man, Mel Reeves, who is an activist and an organizer in the community of Minneapolis. So if you've been watching CNBC or CNN, 
Um, there's a good chance you might have seen him, you know, with a blow blowhorn, <laughs> leading some rallies and whatnot, speaking in front of the state capitol uh, over the past couple of weeks. So like he's in the midst of that. So that's how I grew up. I say I also I grew up on the back of a pickup truck, you know, because there'd be pickup trucks lead, leading the marches, you know, mm-hmm. and my pops would be he, he'd be there with a blowhorn or blow blow yeah blowhorn, uh, leading a, a chant, no justice, no peace, prosecute the police, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I go with them on the weekends when uh, he'd investigate. Uh, these claims of police brutality. We go talk to the families. And um, in addition to being uh, just an activist and an organizer, he also was a writer and editor for the local black paper and mm-hmm. is now the editor, again, of that paper, the Minneapolis or Minnesota Spokesman Recorder, right? So that's 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 my background. Like, that's what I grew up in. I'm, I've always been conscious on, on a level of racial disparities. And I've also been getting educated on that like purposefully mm-hmm. over the years through my youth you know um so as these things are happening and i know a lot of people are just kind of learning even a lot of black folks are kind of learning a little bit more um kind of being educated on how the criminal justice system works i'm like yo i've been in a rage at, <laughs> as as mr baldwin would say for tw- you know the past 20 something years mm-hmm. uh because i i that has just been at the forefront of my mind to the point where at times I've had to purposefully back myself away from issues of justice. So I don't live in a, in a world of frustration and anger, <laughs> you know, if that makes sense. Like, for instance, I said, I can't watch no more slave movies. I'm done. <laughs> like after 12 years of slave, I said, I'm done. I ain't watching no more. I don't care how many you come out with. I'm done. I, I, I get, I, I understand slavery as much as you know a layman can that you know Mm -hmm. didn't specifically study slavery you know (laughs) as a historian like i'm there so so that's kind of where i'm coming from why i say things like yeah i'm a little bit more on the on the radical side of things so um as i talk you know if i if i get a little i'm in left field if if you are the listeners feel i'm a little left field just understand that's where i'm coming from yeah, I think, and I think that that's where we all, again, like I said, this is where we grow, we grow from you coming from your perspective, you coming from our perspective, and we see if we can get to a place where our listeners can learn from both of us, right? That's, that's how it should go. So I'm, I'm going to actually start as, you know, with a question, right? So I, I appreciate that background. And so my question to you would be, with that background, what is your ultimate beef mm-hmm. with how do I put it? I mean, we, you know, we could centralize it on police brutality mm-hmm. specifically, or we can broaden it to you know, racism in America, systemic racism in America. I would like you to articulate um, what, is the, what is the ultimate frustration uh, that would get you to the point of wanting to respond with radical ideas like defunding the police or mm-hmm. throwing a brick through a window that that <laughs> that level of frustration walk that, that that perspective get my do the right thing on right trash can through the piece of <laughs> the pizzeria um so yeah like the, this is the thesis statement right mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean so ultimately what i believe it comes down to is that in america in the united states and this is true for other countries specifically in, in the united states there has been a purposeful and intentional system of rules, laws, mores, all of that, that have been set up with the specific purpose of creating a class system with Black Americans being at the bottom of that for a specific purpose, right? So essentially what we have is a system where Black Americans as a whole, 
I'm speaking on the macro level, right? Black Americans as a whole are not allowed to thrive as they would if they were left to their own merits. If, there, if we were truly in an equal system and everybody was left to, was basically said like, hey, here's $100 and, and, and a bag of bricks and go figure it out, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. We are not allowed to just to make our own path as the American way, as the American ideal says. Um, again, that's on the macro level. There are many instances on the micro level of individuals overcoming and whatnot. And, you know, you argue for any system to be able to succeed, there has to be that, right? You have to give people just enough hope so that they don't rebel, right? You see that in any society that's ever existed. Whoever the lower class is has to have just enough hope. They have to be just satisfied enough with their situation that they don't go, you know, kill the slave masters, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that is my ultimate beef. And specifically, as we're talking about things that are going on now, the main arm, a, a large arm of that, you know, the powerful arm is the criminal justice system of which the police simply play a part. And the part the police play is the police are there to keep things in line. The police are there to keep the lower class where they are in terms of not messing with the upper class. They're there to keep the status quo, right? So those that have, just so y'all know, we're keeping y'all safe, we're keeping y'all, y'all, y'all protected. We're making sure your good services, communities, all of that are nice, are running nice and smooth. And these undesirables over here, we're going to make sure that they don't bother you. And we're going to do that however we need to do that. And if we got to crack a few eggs to make that happen, we know y'all are okay with that. And so we'll do that. And so when I see things like people saying, well, the criminal justice system is broken, policing is broken, I say, no, that's not true. It's operating exactly as it has. And when people disagree, and I, I, I'm not going to make this too long with it, but I simply ask this question. And we'll keep it to Black folks, right? Mm-hmm. Name a time in America where Black people have tried to gain more rights or try to obtain more rights or just rights as a human being. And the police haven't been the first one standing in that way. Everybody wants to, we, 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 we promote Martin Luther King. We talk about nonviolence, which isn't actually really true. You know, we kind of tw- twist that and warp that, <laughs> that nonviolent thing. Uh, King was definitely for agitating the system um, and causing discomfort. But everybody talks about Martin Luther King. Who was standing in Martin Luther King's way? Policemen, right? When slaves ran away, slave catchers, who were essentially the policemen of the day, <laughs> they were the ones catching the slaves, bringing them back. So every time Black people have wanted justice and wanted things like, you know, want, wanted to progress, it has been the police who have been sent out there to keep them in their place. So that's my medium-winded answer. There. <laughs> and it's a good answer. And it's a good answer that, you know, as a Black man, it's hard to to argue, and I shouldn't even preface it that way. I think as a human being, it's hard to argue that if you if your eyes are open, you're going to see, especially in a search of the history, right? Mm-hmm. I'm never going to argue that when you talk about the history of our country, there is uh, sadness when you consider how much intentional work has been done to oppress Black mm-hmm. people. I mean that that there's that to me is common sense. Yeah. Where where I struggle. The full agreement into the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. is the fact that we've got a lot of people, and Dr. King obviously gets the gets the um, to carry the torch the furthest. There's a lot of people besides Dr. King mm-hmm. who are no longer with us, right. who did jail time for us, mm-hmm. who 
lost their lives for us so that we could go to school, get the job, the money, buy the real estate, vote mm-hmm. the, the powers in. Right. These are all things that we can do in 2020 mm-hmm. that we could not systematically do in 1950. Right. right? So when you just talk that 70 year gap, there are things that I can do that my grandparents couldn't do when they were my age. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, so then I, as an educator, as a coach, as an always get better soul, have a hard time seeing people who sit in a situation and simply blame something that was done to their grandparents and their grandparents, grandparents, and their grandparents, and their grandparents. Mm-hmm that stops them from improving their situation. It really, really frustrates me as someone who has gotten out of where I'm at. Now, mm-hmm. if you don't mind, Kellen, I have to, before you respond to that, I must tell you where I'm from. Like, oh, yeah, no, get your thing off. <laughs> I gotta get that off. Because, you know, when you talk about you being in the, in the back truck with your dad and he's doing the activist thing, well, you know, I, I didn't come on here to disparage my own father, but let me just... Let me just tell you, my father is um, is a was in his early days a contributor to the drug society in Baltimore, Maryland. Mm-hmm. My entire family, okay. Again, anyone who's listening to this in my family, I apologize. I'm not going to out any names. I just want everyone to understand that my entire family is at the centerpiece mm-hmm. of incessive hold that the drugs have on the black community in Baltimore, Maryland. Mm-hmm. I'm, I am of a family that I could have easily been given some pretty good position in that world. Right. Yeah. As a very young person, it was, you know, my cousins, my uncles, they were running the city mm-hmm. and they're, and running the city to them means that they're making hundreds and of dollars, thousands of dollars, they're making their living filling the streets with heroin and cocaine and weed. That's what they're doing to their own people. And then when someone dares try to make money on a particular territory that has been mapped out for for my family, Hmm. we are going to kill them. We are going to snuff out lives of young black people. Based off of territory, based off of um, you know rules that we've created in our own world on how the drug game works, you can't do this, you can't wear that, you can't stand there, you can't sell for that price, and you certainly can't talk to me this way, not in front of people that I have to maintain my power structure with. Mm-hmm. So we take our own lives. I've seen it with my own two hands, mm-hmm. my own two eyes. I mean, I've seen it. That's the life that I come from, and I took that life and I said, you know what, I can do better. Hmm. instead of diving into that I dove into basketball and I dove into the books and I got out of that situation and so now I look back and I see everyone who stayed in that situation is in one of two positions dead or in prison Mm -hmm. right there is no other way out of that situation once you get in that's why they call it a trap you Mm -hmm. get in that trap you're not getting out unless you die or they lock you away so, um, 
So when I, so that's the backdrop that I come from that makes me really, really frustrated when I see young people um, being all but encouraged to go that route because a lot of us, a lot of adults are saying, well, it's been 400 years of oppression. Mm. There's been systematic things done to help hold you down. So then the, the kid say, the 14, 15 year old kid says, yeah, the game is rigged. There's no point in playing it. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna go sell some drugs. Mm-hmm. And when they go sell those drugs and they get involved in that lifestyle, it's just reciprocal. Now what happens is those cops that we do not like, mm-hmm. they run into those kids every single day. They're afraid of their lives. They do the traffic stop. And when they pull you over, a civilian who's a mm-hmm. good person, who's a family man, when they pull you over, you know who they see? Mm-hmm. They see those guys that they've been busting down all day and that they know are going to end up killing each other. So that's why you see a lot of uh, anti people who are against this whole movement of like defunding the police are saying the police, there are good policemen who are protecting black people from black people. And we, and we want to, we want to protest them. We want to tell them they're all bad, but yet, it is our own communities that often destroy our own communities. Mm-hmm. So that's my point of view. And so whenever I hear someone who doesn't share that point of view, I'm just so interested to learn from them. How do we talk to a young person and tell them, you're right, there's been so much done to your ancestors, you have the right to stay here in this ghetto, in this hood, sell this stuff, um, and try to beat a system that you can't. Right, that sounds like the uh, the premise of the wire, right? <laughs> and, and, and I was thinking about that because you mentioned Baltimore, but even as you said that at the end, like just independently, that pops in my head. Yeah, it sounds like the premise of the wire. You joke. I promise. Yeah. When I I tell people this all the time, when I watch the wire, mm-hmm. I don't feel like I'm watching a show. I'm mm-hmm. feeling like I'm watching a window into my childhood. Yeah. Or you know, it's a documentary almost. How truthful that show is. Don't mm-hmm. watch that like entertainment. That is not Game of Thrones. That is. That is real life in Baltimore City. Yeah, see, look, we gotta have, we gotta talk offline about that because The Wire is my favorite TV show ever, and I can't watch it again because it is, it's heavy. Yes. You know, it, it's it's great, but I don't, I wouldn't label it as entertaining. Yes. <laughs> Just because of those things you mentioned, but I, I don't want to go on a wire tangent. So stop <laughs> me, stop me, please. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that that that's that's heavy. I mean, um, you know, I didn't know your story or your background on that level. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, first of all, I mean, I, and I'm not, no, you're not asking for it, but I mean, I commend you uh, just like I commend anyone that comes from, you know, basically the gutter or those situations where, Hey, things like game banging or drugs or whatever are being promoted to you, you know, or being mm-hmm. something that's easy to fall into. Right. Um, so I certainly uh, commend you. And as you know, with some of the questions you're a- asking, you know, the, the hard thing about the issue of race in America, I think, or one of the hard things is that it's so dysfunctional, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you're in a dysfunctional family or relationship or situation, like if, just relationship, you're in a dysfunctional relationship, you might end up in a drop down, uh, you know, knock down, you know, drag out, fight, whatever about mayonnaise, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> or somebody not closing a pickle jar, right? And when you say, how did we get here? You know, it's like, this is ridiculous. Why are you yelling at me about the mayonnaise jar, right? And you realize it's all the baggage and 
months and years or whatever of history of the negativity that is causing you to then be in this place right now, right? And so as I've talked to people, um, and I've had a myriad conversation with people in person and also back in my younger uh, days when I used to like think it was profitable to argue with people on social media or whatever, um, I've had tons of these conversations, right? Uh, and it's interesting because on a micro level, like when I'm talking to my son, you know, or my nephews or nieces or just anybody, my message to them as individuals is ain't no excuses. Whatever your situation is, is your situation. You had no control over that. You ain't had no control over the 400 something years of history that black people have dealt with. What you do have control over is the decisions that you make in this place. Um, and so on a micro level, like, Hey, no, you know, if, you have been taught right from wrong. You have to make the choices and decisions that will lead you to being successful, right? On a macro level, I, I, I understand that there have been, again, systems of history that have brought us to this place that have put you in this situation where the choices you have to make, and again, because ultimately this is all comparative, right? The choices that are in front of you to make are very different from the choices that are in front of the majority of white Americans to make right so can you can you know kid x as an individual come out of a place like baltimore or chicago or wherever and, and be successful yes he can mm -hmm. but to do so they need to overcome and jump over hurdles and obstacle after obstacle after obstacle after obstacle that you know johnny whitehead <laughs> you know the average again on average because you know you hear a lot of people be like, oh well, i had to overcome but on average obstacles that they don't have to deal with right mm -hmm. um and so then i understand another thought is well they're only dealing with that because their parents made bad choice and their parents and their parents and their parents okay we can we can take that to its logical conclusion and then either we have we have two options here either black people in general as a whole May, are, are, are less moral, make worse choices, and are less intelligent than white people, or there are actual reasons why we're here, right? And I think about um, things such as like the exceptional Negro concept mm -hmm. and the talented tip, right? Where they say, okay, well, look, some of us black folks can go up here and achieve these great things, right? And if you can make it, so can everybody else pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Martin Luther King said, it's a cruel just to tell somebody to pull, tell a man to pull himself by his bootstraps who doesn't have boots, right? <laughs> and so where I, where I come from or where I fall in that is, yes, individually should we all do our best to make the best of our situation? Sure. But if we actually look at the numbers, like we look at things like unemployment or whatnot, it's actually phys not physically, it's actually impossible for everybody to be successful, right? It's not possible. It's literally impossible. If every kid from Baltimore, you know, tomorrow decided, look, I ain't gonna do nothing goofy. I'm going to school. I'm doing all my homework. I'm studying. I'm getting straight A's. I'm gonna do everything I could, I can, to be successful. Guess what? Because of the system that's there some of them are still going to end up unemployed, right? Some of them are still going to not be able to go to college, right? Some of them are still going to end up having to sweep the floors at best, right? And so regardless of the individual actions, we have a machine in place, right? That is, that is determining, okay, look, X amount of people, we only have enough jobs for X amount of people. 
And then within those jobs, some of them are not going to, going to be able to pay a living wage. And some of those that even if they pay a living wage, they're not going to be able to give insurance and, and so on and so forth, right? And so no matter what, right now, as things are presently set up, we're always going to have that issue, right? And so I, I am all for preaching and teaching our kids, preaching to and teaching our kids that, look, you need to succeed. You need to do what you can do, control what you can control, right? But I also recognize that, look, if we got a thousand kids from the West Side of Chicago or from Baltimore or whatever, like, the, the, not all of them can be successful. And the reality is those thousand kids are dealing with things that they don't, that other people don't have to deal with because of those systems, the economics, the history that took place before them. And we could talk about those different things, but so that's kind of how I, that's how I can talk about history and oppression without also feeling like I'm completely crushed by it. Because yeah. I know that we have options. I know that we can, we can work and we can succeed, right? But I also, the other point I also make there is, you know, this, this analogy has been used a lot. Like, hey, look, if you got if if you're running a hundred meter dash, you know, and you start a couple kids, you know, five meters behind everybody, can you still win the race? Yeah, but you have to be faster than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And not just faster, you have to be significantly faster than everybody else to win that race, to mm-hmm. be successful. If you are of average speed of everybody running, you're you're gonna lose. <laughs> you're gonna end up five paces behind. And so that's what happens. The it's the 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 Kids born in situations such as yours that have the natural, or for the most part, the natural drive, the natural intelligence, and also usually ones that get a couple breaks and meet the right people or whatever, they can, they can overcome those situations, right? But there's a lot of smart kids in the hood that didn't meet the right person, you know, that their talent and their gift isn't necessarily profitable, you know, <laughs> you know, like they might they might not be a gifted scientist, a surgeon or athlete or entertainer or even mathematician. They might be, you know, a fairly gifted painter. They might just be gifted at relationships, you know, so maybe they'd be a great social worker, but that's not going to make it. You know what I'm saying? Like people don't necessarily all have what it takes to overcome negative situations. Um, and that's the thing as black people off in order to be successful, we have to have those intangibles. A lot of white folks don't, they just get to be born. <laughs> you know what I mean? Be mediocre. And here you go. You're working at, you know, AbbVie in, <laughs> in 25 years. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No. Okay. So there's, there's lots that you said that I won't challenge at all. I don't, I will never challenge the fact of white privilege. I, I understand what white privilege is. I understand what it looks like. All right. Most common sense white people acknowledge that too. They've changed that word white privilege into a different phrase called white fragility, which means that they basically acknowledged their privilege and that, mm-hmm. that acknowledgement has some weight to it. Right. And they, right. they feel bad. So I think, I think that's a consensus, but, but I don't, I would challenge you on this idea that those that run the race can't succeed. I think, I don't, I just, I just have a hope. I don't think my, my life, my history allow, allows me that perspective. I think that, first of all, success is a relative term. Right, true. So, yes, I think that it's fair to say that, uh, even in this country, the land of the free, there's still some ceilings that we have to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that our floor 
is as as steep as we as we as we painted. Mm. Our floor is is much higher than it was in 1950 because mm. of so many people who've done so many great things for us. So we've got to do more acknowledgement of the fact that in the heart of the hood, if mm. you do your homework and you care about your life, you care about what you're doing, and you, and you look out ahead of you and you see the difficulty of the race that you have to run, you see the hurdles, you see that these guys got a head start, you see all that and you run anyway, mm-hmm. there is relative success for you. Mm-hmm. You're gonna find yourself being one of those micro situations that you, that you yourself admitted happened. Mm-hmm. Right? You're gonna say, well, though, you know, especially look, a lot of this has centered around black men, uh-huh. but let's not forget our black women. Uh-huh. Our black women are more successful than black men. Our black women have college, have more college degrees than black men. Uh-huh. Our black women are working in hospitals. You know, they're, they're making choices that get them to someplace. Right. Um, so, it really, and I'm not saying there aren't black women who make bad choices. There are, there are black women in, in the game as well. I'm just saying, as a, statistically speaking, mm-hmm. men are the ones who are choosing the fast route that is ultimately the long route. They think they're going a fast route to success by getting money right now. I move this from this corner to that corner, I'm going to have money this weekend, <laughs> like mm-hmm. right now. Um, but that's actually the long route because eventually, you're gonna get yourself in the trap. So I think I think the message to our black community should be run that race. We acknowledge that it's hard. We acknowledge that you're starting from behind. And we acknowledge that we don't have the same ceilings. But please let's start changing this narrative that um that the floor is still in the hood, that the floor is death by hand of cop. The floor is uh death by hand of other black person. That is not, that is not the, the floor for those who run the race. That's only the floor for the, those who quit, from my point of view. If you, if you quit, you look at that and you say, it's too hard, it's too much. I got an excuse I can hang on. It's right here in front of me. It's right in my history books. I can hang on that. And you don't run the race at all, then yeah, you got a pretty bad floor coming. Mm-hmm. I think if you try, if you try in this country, there's enough good white people. There's enough good black successful people. There's enough others, right? Hispanic, Indian, Asian. There's enough people to help you along your way if you're trying. And I don't care where you're from, because I've been there, you know. So when my first job out of school was to go back to the city that, that made me. So my first job after I left a very conservative white college was to go back to the inner city of Baltimore and teach. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting in, in, in classrooms on Martin Luther King Boulevard. And even in that rough area, I could tell you five, six, seven, eight, nine kids, oh, I could tell were trying. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, look, you're getting a class of 30 kids. You, you're lucky if you have seven or eight of them who are listening to you and are trying. Mm. Now, you know, let me caveat this is 2004 so you know <laughs> things are better in 2020 i haven't taught in the inner city in 16 years but in 2004 i would say about one out of every three and that's that's being nice Kellen. 
Oh yeah, I, I taught I taught in the uh, quote unquote in the city as well for a couple of years up until about six months ago. So I, right. I and they're, they're not even trying. They, they, mm-hmm. you know, I got eighth graders, seventh graders, sixth graders who have conceded this race. Mm-hmm. Who have said, "Man, f you, teacher. I'm not listening to you. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And if you don't like it, I'll beat you up." Mm-hmm. You know, that's the mentality of a young black mind in our inner cities. And is your, is your point of view that that, that mentality is the, is the fault of, of systemic racism? Yes, I will say that because that is only true of, the, of as you mentioned, young black minds in particular situations. It's, it's not, that, that is not the case of young black kids that grow up in stable suburban homes and wealthy areas now we do still see things different gaps and things like that there but those things are very specific to a black urban experience and you see some you see similar things in in poor white areas as well like a lot of the numbers that we talk about that people think are only specific to black folks you see on some level again in poor white areas and in other areas of uh, my other minorities in poor areas as well. And so my general issue with uh, that thought process is that as of now in America, it really only applies generally to black people in thought process of, hey, we need to simp- we need to try and work hard. I, I, my understanding of the world, I operate like this. The majority of people are average. There are some that are exceptional. Mm-hmm. Some that are below average. The way things are right now, for the app, for black people, again on a macro level, if you are just average, and we're talking about average intelligence, average hustle, average um, ambition, all of that stuff, if you're just average, you're going to be working class or below, right? If you are below average, you will most likely be aided by the criminal justice system. If you're exceptional. Yeah, you can get up there and do, do some things, right? Or if you just have those circum- circumstances that, you know, provide you with opportunities. The average white person, you will be working class to middle class, right? And so my the issue I have is with equity, right? Essentially, Black people, we have, it's an old phrase where you got to work twice as hard. It's just like, mm-hmm. even in that sentiment, you mentioned, hey, this basically say, hey, we acknowledge the situation sucks, but we got to try hard, try harder. I'm simply saying I recognize that most people don't necessarily have that in, right? And right now, we don't ask that of white people, right? We only ask that of black people because we understand that white people don't have to have that grit on average to be quote unquote successful, just to be to be a stable, stable economically, let's put it that way, right? And so when we talk about systems like, all right, let's talk about the criminal justice system, right? You know, um, you know, you mentioned black women are, are succeeding and whatnot. There, there are studies and numbers and, and, and things out there that will show you that entire generations of black men in different areas of the country are like almost split in half, <laughs> or, or, or not split in half, but almost half of them are removed essentially from the economy through the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. You know, they're either in jail or they get mm-hmm. out their felons or all these sorts of things because black men are criminalized. And now when we talk about roots, so yeah, to me, we, we can't talk about the present without understanding roots you know we can't talk about what's going on in these poor neighborhoods without acknowledging the fact that look after slavery 
black people basically say, hey, you're no longer slaves, but now figure it out. These other people, other people came and we gave them land. We, we, we gave them their own towns and every years. Like we, we allowed them to, to grow the land and, and raise their, their sheep and their cattle, you know, and basically figure things out equitably. Y'all, it was like, okay, hey, you're free. Now you're also just going to have to work on the same land and share crop for us. And basically you're going to be in debt to the people that were once your slave masters for, for life. And even in places where they were able to, black folks were able to come together create a semblance of economy, um, create businesses, vote themselves in the local government during, um, um, uh, my vocabulary is losing, is leaving me, I almost said restoration, uh, but immediately after the Civil War, um, uh, rest, restoration, reconciliation, whatever the name is, you know what I'm talking about if you're listening, <laughs> you can Google it. Uh, White folks came and burnt the places, burnt the cities down, burnt Black Wall Street down. Uh, you know what I mean? And so it's like, no, 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 no. You guys will not be able to succeed, right? Then you move forward, you know, a couple of decades with the Great Migration and Black folks saying, okay, we're going to find jobs and work. Cities literally said, hey, Negroes, you will only be able to live in these areas. And you will only be able to take the jobs we allow you to take, which will not pay you a lot. So you will all be poor, Right. Even after World War II, when uh, black people fought in World War II, I know people, you know, are shocked to hear that because they don't show that in hip. But a lot of black men fought in World War II, right? And what happened was, you came back from World War II, and the, and, uh, the U.S. government gave soldiers home loans, right? White soldiers had access to buy, were able to buy homes in the suburbs because the suburbs were just being created with the advent of highways and whatnot because they said, we don't want to live by these Negroes that just came up north. We're going to go move to the suburbs. Black people were literally not, not allowed access to those homes. So we talk about what is a home, right? So you had all these white soldiers coming home in 1943, you know, 44. They were buying homes, getting, getting equity in those homes, creating a legacy for their family. They let it, you know, you buy a home for a hundred thousand dollars, you know, 15 years later, it's worth one fifty. You get a bigger home. You know, like all black people did not have access to that. We were said, told, no, you have to stay. They redlined us. They kept us in those neighborhoods in Baltimore, in Chicago and name, name a Midwestern city. Right. We literally were forced to stay in poor neighborhoods around other black people. And guess what? They said the, they, the police came out, you know, and said, Hey, these poor black folks are a problem. We're making sure that we keep these poor black people in line. This is before the drugs hit the neighborhoods, right? This is before people were out here shooting each other, right? Before all of that, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you have black ghettos. And they were called ghettos not because they were so dangerous. They were called ghettos because they were full of poor black people. And the police were terrorizing, harassing people then, right? And so we have this whole criminal justice system now. And then, you know, we talk, we can get into the war on drugs, which is basically a free license to put black people in jail and over-criminalize drugs and make sure that essentially the jails were full because it's profitable. But the entire criminal justice system is literally reliant upon locking up black and brown. I usually don't, you know, mix right. but black and brown people, right? America has 25% of the prisoners in the world or at least in the, in the industrial world, right? Um, just in America, right? And a, a huge percentage of those folks are black. We have private prisons. Like one thing I, I was talking to my friend about, and it's kind of funny when you think about it, and it's not funny, but it's a wild thing to think about because I don't think I even really realized this until a few years ago, right? The entire criminal justice system incentivizes people to take a, um, a plea deal, 
right? So we have this whole this whole arm of the police that we know for a fact over over criminalizes over polices black neighborhoods. They arrest black people at a higher rate and all those sorts of things, right? So they arrest them and charge charge them with crimes at a higher rate than their white counterparts, right? Then when you're charged with those crimes, the system literally cannot handle court cases for everybody. I believe it is, and I might be wrong on these stats, so if you're listening, feel free to check me. My bad, I'm not speaking mm-hmm. well. so, But I'll leave, I believe it's only 5% of cases actually, of criminal cases actually go to trial, right? And there are not enough defense attorneys, there are not enough judges, not enough courtrooms, court space to actually allow everyone their day in court, right? So what do they do? Well, they strongly say, they say, look, hey, we're charging you with this possession of, let's say, cocaine, right? If you go to jail or if you go to trial, you can get 20 years. Plea down here and plea and we'll give you 18 months, you know, and then two years probation. Right. So most people are going to say, hey, look, my options are either I sit here because, again, usually if they if they decide to go to uh, the court and they'll tell them, hey, if you want to take it to court, that's fine. You might not get a trial for another year. So either I sit here for a year in jail, you know while I wait on the trial where I could be sentenced to 10, 20 years. Right. And, and I don't know if there's evidence or numbers out here, but I was strongly, I strongly suspect that, uh, that people that go to, that go to trial get higher numbers of years because it's essentially a punishment of the system. Right. We're going to punish you for going to trial because we don't want you to go to trial. So you have people accepting these plea deals and becoming felons. Right. And we know all what happens once you become a felon. Right. Um, so they're accepting these to become a felon. If everybody, if everybody's just right now, so you know what, I'm not accepting a plea deal. I'm going to court. Or even let's not even say fifty percent of people charged, just black people charged with crimes. They say, yeah, I'm going to court. I'm taking my my, my chances. That the system would literally fall apart. It it could not handle that. It absolutely could not handle it. So if the 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 criminal justice system that we're in relies upon arresting a high number of black people charging them with crimes that they know they have to plead down to because they're not going to risk sitting in jail for 12 months to get 20 years when you could, they could just take 18 off rip going to privatized prisons where they make, you know, where, where these private prisons are getting tax breaks and things like that. And they're making products for other companies. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, and you got all, and, and you have all the other industries that are making money off of it. Like police departments literally lose funding when crime goes down. Mm-hmm. They get more funding when crime is high, when they, when they make more arrests, they get more funding. Right. So the, so when we talk about, well, you know, black men making these poor choices and going to jail. Sure. But there's also a, a, a system that's right here in our face of rules and regulations and laws that is in, that essentially incentivize everybody to criminalize these people. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there are individual choices that are involved. Right. And that's generational, too. Like your grandpa, your father, you know, like just individual choices that are there. Right. But the, with the weight of the entire criminal justice system pushing you towards jail, it is very hard, you know, and, and you know, again, we can't necessarily see this, you know, physically, you know, <laughs> but it's very hard to expect a majority of people to then avoid that. And part of the reason why we could say, hey, yeah, black women are doing better than black men is because they're simply not criminalized to the level that black men are. You know what I mean? Like, so the, the things that are out there for black people to take advantage of, the scholarships, the, the programs, things of that nature, black women are taking advantage of that, as they should be, right? But black men are just kind of gone. <laughs> like, there's a huge percentage of black men that are in jail. It's something like 30-some percent of black men have are either in jail or have been in jail. And I think it might be higher than 30%. Again, I'm kind of throwing, these numbers are getting all messed up in my head. 
but anyway, so that that you know, um, yeah, I I, I let I let you uh yeah. respond to that. <laughs> everything you know, as I'm talking to you, if you say something I think is irresponsible as far as like statistics or history or it's like inaccurate, I'm I might cut you off. Right? Oh, feel free. But no, I mean everything you're saying, I don't disagree with, Kellen. Yeah. And that, that's what that's what's so important about what I across is that is that all of what you're saying must be acknowledged by both sides of this conversation. What where I get frustrated, and that's why when I do the show, I'm gonna bring on, you know, somebody that thinks completely different than you do, and I'm gonna challenge him as well. Him or I'm gonna her. listen to that show with with yeah. my with my, my fist clenched just <laughs> like <laughs> But no, because because there are people who won't acknowledge half of the things you said. They won't right. acknowledge that there is a that there is a history of white supremacy behind law enforcement. They won't oh, you mean you mean the people that just come out there and say, well, black people get policed more because they commit most of the crimes. Exactly. They go they go too uh, rigid with their point of view. Well then you ask them stuff like okay, so then why is it that every stat shows that white kids do drugs even more than black people? In terms of drug usage, but black people are arrested for, charged for, receive longer sentences for them by a high number. Well, if you take the same amount of policemen mm-hmm. that operate in the inner cities and you expand them into the suburbs and you tell them, I want a Reagan level war on drugs in the suburbs, mm-hmm. I want you stopping and frisking, I want mm-hmm. you going hard looking for opioids and you know, all the drugs that are happening in the suburbs. Right. Then you're gonna you're gonna find them. Oh yeah. So your point, that point is well taken. But what I do is I scan back a little bit and I say to myself, all right, let's acknowledge the fact that there's some rig in this game. This American game, this whole, you know, my country tis of the land of the free. All right. That it's a game and, and let's point out the fact that it's rigged in some places. Right? I don't know if you, I'm sure you have. You saw that lady who's getting a lot of push, the one who was like, F your target. And, um, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Oh, you nah, well, <laughs> look, there's been so much out there. Like, <laughs> I could have missed one or two. I'll send you the link or you can put it in the show notes. But just yeah. in about why are we looting? Well, we're looting because we don't own anything. And we don't own anything because when we try to get it, you guys burned it down. Right, you you mad at me for burning down your target, but you burned down my Black Wall Street, yeah. right? And and she went in on on lots of things, and she wasn't wrong. The problem is that, and it's the same thing I would say to you: is it's not an acknowledgement of the fact that we either one don't understand that the game is rigged. Mm. Or two, we see that it's rigged and we play it the way they want us to play it anyway. True. That that to me is just silly. So then there's two forms of reform that we need to pick it every bit as much as we're picketing the police. We need we need protests that are designed around education. Mm-hmm. No young black child should leave middle school even, elementary school even, without understanding the rigged nature of the game that they must play. If we, if we let them out and we tell them that the man is against them and there's nothing we can do about it, we failed them. 
if we put them through the system, we say, um, there is no man, there is no white oppression. You, you can be anything you want. Well, we failed them. Mm-hmm. So we've got we've to educate young black people about how to play this game with its rigged nature mm-hmm. while we also try to change the rigging. Yeah, no, I, I'm 100% with you on that. And then the other thing that we've got to do is we have to turn our protests to the people who are benefiting from the weakness, the fragility of our own minds, which are the kink, which are the top black drug dealers, which aren't even top. They are, they are puppets by massive, massively rich Colombians, massively, massively rich white people, massively, massively rich banks, right? People that you deposit, you as a good citizen, you deposit your money into a bank that is run by some massively rich person who knows for a fact that he is processing laundered money from, from cocaine, from heroin, from weed, from the things that are killing our black men. Yeah. So we, but we are not paying any attention to them. We're gonna let these guys come into our community, flood it with drugs, um, uh, recruit soldiers, and educate those soldiers better than we can. These guys are explaining to, to 14-year-old boys, hey, come work for me, move this from here to there, watch that corner for me, do this, do that, and I'll take care of you. And to a 14-year-old, they're saying, for dollars for, for those new jeans, for this, for that, for this, for that. I mean, but that's, you know, that's, that's an education of a mind. And we're not countering that successfully because we're, you know, we're, uh, I don't know. I don't want to be too bold because you know there's a lot of great teachers out there. <laughs> there's some people teaching in in the city who who haven't learned themselves. Oh yeah, I mean you know we know the inner city schools which get the least funding, they pay the less, the least. So you know they get the you get teachers that really care a lot of times, but some, in in general, you know the teachers that would rather make you know, 80,000 a year versus 35 to mm-hmm. move on. But the one thing I will push back on that, on, on what you mentioned, is I think the quote-unquote war on drugs expose kind of a lie, right? That the issue is the drug dealers and and even on some level, the drug users, like we locked a lot of drug dealers up uh, in, in the 80s and the 90s. Um, a lot of drug users got locked up, taken off the streets and put in jail. And what happened? They got replaced. Because as long as people want to get high, they're going to find something to get high with and then there's going to be somebody to sell it. We could take literally everybody off the streets tomorrow that's selling drugs in this country and it's not going to stop the drug problem. I contend that the biggest issue with the drug problem is poverty. Now, that doesn't mean that wealthy people don't use drugs. We know they do. Right. <laughs> we know they do just like we talked about, you know, these wealthy kids using drugs or whatever. But these kids in the suburbs that are buying pills and stuff, and that isn't the stuff that is causing the necessarily the same level of violence and killing and whatnot. Right. Um, it's the it's the drug users in poor neighborhoods, poor areas, people that oftentimes start using drugs because they're looking for an escape, because they lack hope, because they have been inflicted with this disease of poverty, whether it's strictly by the system's doing or partially by their own doing, whatever the case may be, right? Um, but so I, I've, off, I've always viewed it as 
the way we solve that is by solving that issue of poverty. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not necessarily an optimist by nature. I don't know. I don't think in, in, in a capitalistic system you will solve poverty because there's always going to be poor people in, in the way capitalism works. <laughs> but I do think that, that there are ways that we can go about this. So we kind of early on in the call, um, or in our conversation, you mentioned, you know, radical, uh, radical viewpoints like disbanding the police and things of that nature, right? I, I often wonder, is it that radical to provide well-funded drug programs in our inner city neighborhoods? Like really, truly well-funded programs designed to prevent kids from taking drugs in the first place and then really designed to help drug users, right? Like are there things that we can do that are different than, you know, the nothing essentially we're doing now in most in most poor inner city areas, you know, even if we're not solving the issue of poverty, I think there are a lot of things we can do that help people that have gotten addicted to drugs, you know, yeah. to get off of that. There are things, honestly, you know, I ain't going to get too, um, you know, tinfoil hat on you here, but I mean, there's a, there's a lot of evidence to point that the U.S., if they really wanted to, this is going back to the 70s and 80s, could have kept a lot of the drugs out of the country, the cocaine, and the heroin and things of that nature. And, you know, a lot of people say, look, they allow that to come. There's a lot of people that believe that on some level, the government or the FBI or the CIA or whoever, not only allowed, but encourage drug uses and availability in the inner cities. So if you can do that, I got to believe that there's things that we can do that help prevent it or treat it and things of that nature. Because drug dealers can't sell them. They, like Chris Rock had a joke. He said, I ain't never seen a drug dealer sell drugs. They just offer drugs, right? <laughs> right? They, they, they're not putting needles in people's arms, right? Um, so if, if the clientele dries up, guess what? So will the, the, the street level dealers, the head honchos, the bosses, all of that stuff. It'll all dry up, right? And I don't know what the specific answer there is, but I do think well, 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 that's fine. I, I think you make a great point. I just would say that, that one of the answers must be that like okay so if i concede your point that it's that it's a poverty-based thing mm -hmm. then then i need you to hopefully concede my point that the best way out of poverty is education and hard work oh most definitely you're not going to get out of I don't, listen i don't care what they do systematically mm -hmm. right they can change every law in the book we can start over from scratch redo the constitution completely Mm. It's not going to change a fundamental thing about being human, mm. which is that you have to make a choice. You know what I mean? I don't really, because like you said, you got rich you got rich people who make poor choices every single day. <laughs> so at the end of the day, you have to make choices that can, that are consistent with success. That's something I have to do. Yeah. Black man, it's something I have to do as a man, it's something I have to do as an American, it's something I have to do as a human. Mm -hmm. Just make choices that are consistent with success, right? So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, go ahead. I just said I agree. Oh yeah. So 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 this whole thing is like this like reciprocal like circle that we're talking about. If you yeah. if you're gonna say, okay, no, the drugs is not the problem, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's poverty is the problem. Then I'm going to tell you, then we have to fix the poverty because I'm never going to sit here and sit on my hands and say, 
we're as black people we don't need to fix we don't need to fix the drug game we don't need to make better choices we need to put all of the onus on the policeman the human being mm. who goes to work every day gets up like everybody else brushes his teeth says good night says goodbye to his kids says goodbye to his wife goes out there in the community and is met with black and brown people making poor choices i'm i'm not uncle tom i'm not i'm not a house you know what I am a common sense person who can say the human condition can only see so much of that before they associate poor choices with a color of a skin. Yeah, and, and I'd, I'd agree with you, um, especially when it comes to education. I mean, I grew up, you know, my father always emphasized education and whatnot. Um, and I, it's, it's interesting because <laughs> I think a lot of times when we talk about education, it's more so from like this kind of principled standpoint. Um, education is important to me because we live in this capitalistic society where in order to be able to kind of chart your own path or have choices, like I always tell my son, it's about having choices, right? Um, the better you do in terms of school, the more choices you have later on in life, right? You want to give yourself as many choices as possible so that you can write, you know, kind of mark your own path, right? So education is important because that college degree, that master's degree, those things, those give you the pathways to make money and be successful economically. Um, social education, life education, I, I personally even value even more than just, you know, that book knowledge, right? Just, okay, you went to school, you learned about sociology <laughs> you know what i mean obviously there's some fields that you know you kind of need to sit in class and do your labs right <laughs> right where, where you can't yeah but um but so yeah so i i certainly agree i mean education is the it's the main tool that's available to us to improve our situation it's the main tool that's available to us to create our own path in life right and so it's vital and i, I do agree um you know so, so we'll talk to our kids about that but so track it for me, right? So track mm-hmm. these statistics for me. So let's talk about the fact that you've got these uh, black men in, in prison. You mentioned earlier, like 30%, right? Mm-hmm. So now let's track those numbers and tell me how many of those brothers have bachelor degrees. I don't, I don't know that number. I, I guess very few. I don't know how many, but for the sake of our conversation, yeah. we can probably admit that if we, if we, if we filter out that percentage of black men in prison hmm. but only take out the bachelor degrees you're not going to take out that many are you like, no is, i mean if someone wants to fact check us that's fine i can look it up whatever but i would say to no, probably the vast majority of the, uh, the vast majority don't have that right so then so then we talk about well how does a black man get to a point where he doesn't get an opportunity to continue his education well first of all let's just talk about high school mm-hmm. how many black men in prison, graduated high school. Now, I don't know what the number is. Well, I do, do know the number said the less education you have, the more likely you are to be incarcerated. That's what I'm getting. But what I do find interesting, too, is, you know, look, it's maybe the last 30 or so years when this whole idea of college became a norm, right? Um, you know, there were generations before us where you didn't have to go to college. There was not an expectation for everybody that once you graduate high school, you go to college, right? So I... It, I've often made the argument that the idea of college being necessary and the for-profit colleges that have popped up in the last 30, 
40 years is another tool of separation um, in society. Now, I say that people might be like, oh, well, you know, you tripping. That's real revolutionary. But I mean, we think about it. College costs money, right? There was a time in this country where if you graduated high school, you had the requisite education to do most jobs. If you wanted to be a banker or maybe a C, you know, your CEO or something, or there were specific jobs where you needed to go to college because there were extra skills and abilities that you need. Mm-hmm. What popped up? I went to DePaul University. DePaul University is a four-year liberal arts school. We spend two of those four years taking classes like, or taking the humanities classes, learning history, art, those sorts of things. You take like one science class and all of that, right? And the argument is always, or the, the, the point has always been, this is to help you grow as a person, to expand your worldview and all of that. Here's what doesn't make any sense about that. We live in a capitalistic society. How many companies are saying, you know, we want our, 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 peop- our, our employees just to be better people as a whole. So we're going to take all our sales reps, all these guys who are selling widgets, and we want you guys to learn about art and history. And we're going to pay for you guys to take this, this art class, right? They don't do that. Why? Because all they need you to do is sell these widgets and make this money, mm-hmm. right? So, but what we have is we have the, now these jobs are requiring four-year bachelor degrees, knowing full well two of those years we're learning things that had nothing to do with what your major is. So even if I got a, a major in widget selling, why do you need me to have a four-year bachelor degree when you know two of those years had nothing to do with selling these widgets, right? Mm-hmm. And so what happens is you got people that can't afford that four-year bachelor's degree, right? And we obviously know that there's student loans and things of that nature. But yeah, so anyways, that, that's me going off on a little tangent about education. But I, there was a time when black, you know, a black man could graduate high school, then become a mechanic, you know, <laughs> and, and take care of themselves. But, um, the, the, person, the person who is not getting a college degree mm. because of money and money alone is not a person that's in any trouble. Say that again? That, not a person that's what now? The person who is not getting a college degree because of the affordability of it mm. is not someone that I am concerned with at a high number, obviously, you know, individuals, whatever, but as a high number, as a macro level, I'm not concerned with that group of people becoming detractors from our society. Because if that means, if, if they even looked into higher education, that means that they they did a pretty good job in high school. They graduated high school, they took the SAT, they took the ACT, they started thinking about what they wanted to do, you know, in their future. Mm-hmm. If they end up being a tradesman, if they end up, you know, starting a business, if they end up doing whatever they want to do with their high school diploma, I still don't think they're going to end up being detractors from our society because they're forward-thinking. Forward-thinking people constantly get better. So that's why, you know, one of the other is, um, you know, I used to work for an online university. Online universities statistically get most of their students later in life, right? It's not a lot of 18-year-olds that go to Phoenix University, right? Is usually people who, you know, wanted to prove to their kids that, you know, it's never too late to go back and, and they end up taking online classes, you know, 35-year-olds, 50-year-olds that are taking college courses. So I've seen this. I've had these conversations with these people and that's what they're doing. They're deciding later in life, but they've always been forward thinkers. Mm-hmm. The people who are who are doing this, this circle thing that's mm-hmm. frustrating everyone. It's frustrating you because you're saying, by you staying in this circle, you're you're making um, 
you're you're keeping the system going and now they're going to put you in jail and I'm going to be mad at the white people for doing that and all of that. And then I'm mad at them because I'm saying you're taking away this this notion that we all have a choice. I'm saying so those there's a those are non-forward thinking people. Those are quitters from my point of view. Those are people who looked at the game, saw it was rigged, and put their hands down. They said, I'm not playing this game. I quit. I don't want to do it. It's too hard. It's too difficult. It's not fair. The man's gonna hold me down. And then in 1940, 1950, 1920, 1864, whatever, mm-hmm. I think those people had every reason. There was so much systematic oppression that then I will give you some mercy. In 2020, you are getting none from me or very little from me, very little, because I'm saying there's too many people that have died. You can vote. You can vote. You can go. Why don't you vote? Well, because I don't, it doesn't matter. My vote doesn't matter. That's ignorant. You can do it. You can, uh, you can go to the library. If you don't have, oh, they have really poor books in my school. That's correct. I see that. And I'm really upset about that. I'm going to go fight for you to get better books. But until I do that, go to the library. Mm-hmm. Oh, forget that. That's an old argument, Rick. That's what I used to tell people in the 90s. It's 2020. You don't even got to go to the library. <laughs> you got to get one of these in your hand. Got the world's information at your fingertips. But, you know, I think I think we're, we are on level on a similar page. Um, you know, I... I had a conversation with my my dad, and I probably had it with other people um, over the past few years. When we talk about you know different things that are going on, you know, obviously with everything that's been popping off lately with the police brutality, and you know, people realizing, okay, look, we got to change the way this works, right? I've often thought that what stops so in the late fifties and sixties, right when we had the civil rights movement. They, we, black Americans were at a point where they felt like, look, life is so, things are so bad with race relations, not even race relations, with racism, right? We, we feel like at this point, we have very little to lose because we have to create a better future for our children, right? Mm-hmm. So people were willing to sacrifice um, their jobs, their health, even their lives to fight that fight, Right. And I think what happened is, you know, America loosened the grip a little bit on our necks, right? So now, like, if we talk about slipping through the cracks, right, or let's use a better metaphor. They loosened the the, the, the grip, right, on their fist, right? And so now they loosen a little bit. So now what we have now is there's a little bit more of a light at the end of the tunnel. We have more folks that are that are slipping through, that are going to college, that are working, you know, in, in corporate jobs, that are doing like entertainment-wise. You black people are like, you see, black people are much. We're we're doing better in many, many, many ways than we were in the '60s. Comma, however, there are other stats to show. And look, like when we talk about uh, the number of us that are in jail. Um, the fact that uh, a white man with no, with, uh, or I'm sorry, a white man with a felony on his record is still as likely, if not more likely to get a job than a black man with no criminal record. When we talk about the study in Boston that showed that, hey, a, a, a resume that has a black sounding name is only 33% as likely to get a phone call back as one with a quote unquote white sounding name, right? And those are just things that I popped up on top of my head, but there's a lot of stuff out there that shows, and hey, look, 
is still not anywhere near equitable, right? We're still not anywhere near where the fight was supposed to take us, right? And so because we're doing a little bit better, right? Because you said it's kind of like, oh, well, now there's no excuses because it's a little bit more light there, right? Now we know, you know, as a black man, you know, if you apply to a college in this country, they're not going to straight up say, hey, no, we're not taking black folks, right? Now, now they might say, yeah, we're only going to allow 2% of our applicants to be black. We might not say that out loud, right? <laughs> we're less likely to look at your resume if or your, your um, application if you're coming from certain areas. You know, a school in the Chicago area might only say, well, we're only going to take X amount of kids from the CPD because, you know, or Chicago Public Schools, I'm sorry, uh, CPS, because, you know, we kind of know what that's looking like. So we're at this point where people are just comfortable enough life is just good enough. Or I've been saying this for years, but we don't, people aren't really willing to fight for that extra, you know? So I, I hear what you're saying in terms of, you know, on some level, Hey, yeah, yeah, bro. There's no excuse. You can do X, Y, and Z. And that that's true. But the reality is the numbers still don't bear out that everybody can do this. So we're still not at a point where it's equitable. We're just at a point where it's possible for you to be successful, right? So on an individual level, where it's not 1930 where, hey, no, you can't go into that restaurant. You know what I mean? No, you can't oh, you can't start a business because they won't, they literally will never give you the the loan to start that business. You know, like right. it, it, it's not an impossibility, but it's still a hardship to get some of these things. So where I'm coming from, or what I'm looking for is a, a situation, a society where those hurdles no longer exist. Right. Where so and again, that's why I, I think we're kind of on the same page. You say, hey, look, for you as an individual, for my son, Quentin, who's 15, I'm telling you, you ain't got no excuse because I'm not going to accept any, any excuse that you give me. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm also going to hey, if you deal with racism, we have now tools and things that we can deal with or that we can utilize, to try to overcome those things, to fight those things, whatever. It's not like it was in 1965. However, I want my, my grandkids to be in a society where they don't have to jump over those hurdles where they're not in the way where it's not just hey you know even though you're black it's possible that you can get the same thing as white folks do i don't want you to have to work at 120 percent capacity to get something other folks are working at a 60 percent. i understand that there's wealth gaps or that you know some are wealthy some are not but that that's where it comes to play uh for me and you know you mentioned earlier um if i can double back uh, actually, let me stop because that, that would kind of change the subject. But you mentioned something about police earlier, and I did want to come back around yeah, around yeah. to that at some point. Yeah, do, do that. I, I want to respond a little bit to what you said just now. Yeah. First of all, I want to acknowledge when you talk about Q, you know, it's a it's an opportunity for you. And I, and I, I don't know exactly, but I assume we're of the same age, right? You know, in, in our generation. I'm 47. Okay. Is he a little, little no, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I, I could have said 28 or 47 we black yeah, nobody knows <laughs> that's uh, I, I don't mind I'm 40 years old right born in 1979 so I'm, I'm of that generation that is you know um, you know my parents are still alive and they are civil rights then their parents my grandparents are still alive I just had a great conversation with my grandmother a couple of days ago that's and a beautiful day I asked her about all of this and, and with her seeing everything that she's seen mm. um, since the, you know, since the, the forties, she still echoes my sentiment, which is, look, it's always been this way. The game is rigged. Mm. 
America has a lot to atone for. But when at the end of the day, we need to do better. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is how I explain it to some people when I was talking to I have no idea how a rocket gets off the ground. Rocket science is complicated. Mm. I have no idea how it works, right? But basketball, the thing I know, mm. is not complicated. It's difficult, but it isn't complicated. You put the ball in the hole. You know what I'm saying? It's not that complicated, but but there's an entire intricate thing around it, and it can be difficult to do. And if you can jump, it's easier. If you're tall, it's easier. And if you're short, it's harder. I get all that. So difficult, I understand. But complicated, it's not. So this that's how I view going from the hood to success in America. It is not complicated. It is difficult, you know, and for different people. So the smarter you are, the more talented you are. Obviously, we know how entertainment works, how sports works. Um, but at the end of the day, you find me someone who is committed to education, committed to hard work, mm-hmm. and I will point you out someone who's going to get out of that situation. I don't care what you tell me about systematic racism. If you give me those two elements, committed to education, committed to hard work, I'm going to tell you someone who's going to make it to at least the middle class and they're going to be okay. And, 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 but I'm not dumb. I acknowledge that that was not always the case. There were times when even those two elements were not enough. They would not educate you. I don't care how much you wanted it. Right. And they would not let you live in this neighborhood. They literally had laws that protected them from you living in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So that was complicated. Jim Crow was complicated. This is just difficult. This is just, this is just, you know, it's hard. I understand it's hard, but it's how you get done. Weight loss is another thing I would think about. It's, I understand, man. If you if you get to yourself to a point where you are massively out of shape, it is very difficult to get back in shape. Hmm. It isn't complicated. I know what you gotta do. <laughs> you gotta exercise, you gotta eat well. You know, people who got to that point, they go, yeah, that's easy for you to say because you're skinny. I hear you, but it's, I'm just saying, the formula is right in front of you. Exercise, eat well, you're going to lose weight. Mm-hmm. And that, You educate the work hard, you're going you're gonna to make money. Yeah, and, and that's why where, you know, just comes back to that macro and micro, you know. It's mm-hmm. on that micro level, like you said, it's, it's not complicated. Um, now, I mean, there are times where people are on, you know, are on a game and things still trip them up. And, you know, again, when we talk about that angle, for me, it's always just, hey, I feel like America is, America will be who America says it is when it doesn't have to be difficult, when, when, when the difficulty is even across the board, you know. Um, I remember, I still remember being in college, especially when I first got there. And it tripped me out how, like, even those, you know, subcast was, you know, a little goofy. But, like, my black friends who, you know, made up the majority of, of my circle, everybody took college somewhat seriously. You know, like, I, I had this idea of college that everybody was just clowning and, you know, just getting lit and all that all the time. And, yeah, we had a good time. But I remember specifically a dude I went to school with used to say, 
or he had literally broken down how much each of his classes cost per class period. Mm-hmm. And he'd be like, man, I ain't skipping class. That costs X amount, <laughs> X mm-hmm. amount of dollars, right? In my freshman year, I got put in the freshman dorm at DePaul. DePaul's a, kind of a known, it's a name school. A lot of people know it. Well, a lot of people don't know it's only like 2,000 kids actually stayed on campus. So the on-campus community was kind of small. So I was in the freshman dorm. And I will, t- I will tell you, that dorm, it was probably 90% white, and it was wild. The, the kids was wilding out. Like, they, were, they was lit. They was, they was drunk and high every other day. It, it, it was wild. My black friends was like, no, nah, like, we can't really afford to mess up. Mm-hmm. And so when I think back to that, I'm like, when, when, when in 30 years, it would be great, I'm, not that I want people wilding out, if the black students – could, could have the same attitude towards school as, as the majority of the white students. And right now we're not, right now we're not there. And right now the kid, the, the kids that are in college, the black, like a lot of them came from Chicago public schools or whatever. These folks were the high achievers. You know, they were the ones that busted their butt, finished near the top of their class, all of that. Some of my white classmates, they were just, yeah, you know, you just happen to be from Skokie, you know, <laughs> like you were a kid from Skokie, you didn't do any extracurriculars, wasn't nothing necessarily special about you, but your parents could afford to send you there, and, you know, your ACT and SAT score was decent enough, because you had to be, while the other kids, like, I knew kids that was smart as a whip, I sound like an old man when I say that, mm-hmm. but had to be in the, um, like, I was blessed, I wasn't in the bridge program. And actually, it messed me up because uh, if y'all don't know what I'm talking about, the bridge program is where they send the kids that, you know, your test scores are a little lower. So before you start your freshman year, you got to take these English kind of almost essentially remedial English and math and that, that sort of thing. So by the time I got to school my freshman year in the fall, half of the black kids already knew each other, you know, at least in my freshman class because they had all been in the bridge program. And these are kids that were like straight A students. You know, so anyways, I'm not going to get too deep into the education thing. But, but so what, when I look at you know, those elements of it, as what you said, like, it's, it's, it's difficult, but it's not complicated. Like, I fully agree. And my, my hope, my desire, and I think, you know, even with the unrest we're seeing and people stepping up and, and protesting is that as a country, we're starting to say, look, it is not, a, we, we are not going to continue to be okay with the fact that it has to be much more difficult for our black kids and our and our black grandkids and whatnot, then y'all, we that is what it is right now. We're gonna push them right now. We're gonna say no excuses right now. But I don't want those same uh, obstacles and burdens. And look, I want to make sure I say this because this yeah. is important. I don't want anyone to mis- misunderstand me when I'm doing a defense of certain things and talking about what we need to do. Oh yeah, we just talked. There, there, there's two things that that you just mentioned that's important. Um, another sign of that idea that we are basically graded on a different curve mm-hmm. is the Ahmed Aubrey story. Mm-hmm. Now, I want you to think about this. And anyone who's listening, I want you to uh, be honest with yourself. You can't lie to yourself, so be straight. Mm-hmm. How important was it to our society that this young Black kid be labeled as a jogger? Right? This was massively important to the media that they spun this as he's just an innocent black man going for a jog in his neighborhood and he was snuffed out by two white racists. Mm-hmm. That's how it was spun to me. And I, and I, as, as the more I read that, I thought, you know why this is spun to us like this? Because it has to be in order to feel sorry for this young man's life. He can't be just a bad kid. 
You can't just be making a bad decision on a on a on a normal summer day. Like they, well, I saw a video where he was looking into some houses. Maybe he was a bad kid. What if he was? Okay, so you're telling me that in this country, kid, young people who make bad decisions don't deserve their life. They don't deserve a second chance. I can guarantee you, if that was a white kid snuck on by two black people, it would not have mattered. He could have, he could have spit on them. He could have. Right. He could have stolen their stuff. He could have been high. It would not have mattered. It would have been the innocence of his life being taken that would have caught people, you know, whatever. But with us, it has to be like, like look at the pictures that you put up. Anytime one of us dies, we go have to find a picture of him in a tuxedo mm-hmm. or him, you know, looking well to do. We couldn't show him with a back of hat on, you know, just being normal. You right. understand? We couldn't do that because then the image would be. Oh, he's you know he probably deserved that. And now, that's that racism. <laughs> what I appreciate about the Floyd situation, mm-hmm. from where I sit, I believe that most common sense people don't care. I think what I think the suffocation of that man was so emotionally impactful for people. Now they don't even care if he was what his rap sheet is. I saw the Candace Owens video. She's trying to get everybody to focus on his rap sheet and that he has some bad past. And most people are like, I don't care. I appreciate that about where we are. And you know, that's that's real because it's interesting because the, there's two sides to that too. Like with George Floyd, and look, I've been, again, That this is my neighbor. I, I've been locked into all this been going on. And there really hasn't been a lot of talk, period, about who he is as a man. And I don't mean that as a negative. I mean, just like, yeah, I've seen a couple memes go around. One of my old coworkers shared one of those that listed like his his rap list or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So you see on one side, like, but there's been very little of that as there used to be when all this stuff happened. And even on the flip side, like I I, I actually it was just a couple of days ago, I was reading an article and they were saying, hey, look, George Floyd um, has he he was working in in these um, these youth programs. He kind of helped start this this basketball program to to help youth. He even was working as as a um, I don't know if it was a pastor. So he was working at, at some level within the church. Um, basically, all these positive things that he's been doing over the last ten years that are community oriented, right? But there hasn't that even that hasn't really been out there. So, like, I think we've finally gotten past the point where it's like we need to determine whether or not this is a good person or a not good person before we can decide whether what happened to him was okay or not. And previously that had been the case. I think this has been, it was so blatant. I think we've seen so many instances now that are on the news and all that, that, you know, as, as King talked about the white moderate, I think is finally at the point where they're like, okay, I can't keep denying that this is an issue. Or even if I didn't deny it, I can't continue to ignore it. Right. And so regardless of what he did, everybody, regardless of what type of individual he he was, everybody saw what happened. And we know and everybody with two eyes can see that was wrong. That was even you see the smirk on the cop's face. And the fact that we live in a society where this sort of thing happens is a problem and we can't have it. And I honestly think even even a lot of white folks that, that may not care deeply about this issue internally at least on a surface level externally are saying, okay, I can't, I can't be okay with this. Or I can't even be seen to be okay with this. Like if America is all these things that 
we hold it up to be that white Americans kind of believe it to be that it isn't always, they have to at least say, no, this isn't okay. Yeah. It's kind of like you went too far. Like I said earlier, the, the justice system is okay if a few A's get cracked, right? And in general, it's working how it's supposed to. And if we got if a few Negroes or poor folks die, you know, you know, uh, as we're as we're cracking down, then those are acceptable losses. But this, they, it was a step too far, yeah. it's too blatant, too obvious. So, yeah. um, but in, to your point about Ahmad Arbery, yeah, like it, it used to be the the labeling was so important, and as you mentioned, kind of still is. Um, but I honestly think there's a, just a level of truth to it. I mean, it's it for all intents and purposes, it seems like the, the kid was literally just out there jogging. And so, I mean, the other labels out there are, you know, he's just a a kid. I, I, I don't know really how else they would label it, but I mean, yeah, it's, he was I, I, know, I, don't, I wasn't there. I do not know. I don't think any of us honestly know. I just like to get everyone to look into the heart and be honest with themselves and ask themselves, how much does it matter? That That's all I'm trying to get people to realize. Okay. As black people, do we need? Is it important to us that we see him in a good light, you know? Or can like like I think that's what the point you were getting when you're talking about your 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 story at college. That's what I took from it is when will we get to a point where we're allowed to be imperfect? Right. You know, like what's like we're we're human beings, we're dichotomous, like, you know what I'm saying? I'm every bit as good as I am not so good you know that's just the way it is to be alive yeah. we don't we don't get out of that we must be excellent in everything otherwise our lives don't matter exactly. so much you know and, and it's so it's internalized too you know i was at a rally uh the other day and one of the speakers got up there and, and this is a black guy he was talking about uh you know the whole judging a book by its cover and you know people got to see beyond the cover and i said look this is that that's an old way of thinking I my cover is a large part of who I am, right? I don't need you to have to think deeply to to read my inside. I need you to see my cover and be okay with that, and not and not have a preconceived notion about who I am or what I do or whatever the case may be, because you associate my my cover with negativity, and we know that again this is embedded in us right <laughs> it's embedded in white folks and black folks right and we know that there are things that perpetuate it at times too you know just being fair right but the fact that we're still talking about no don't judge me by my cover you know or you know the guy's jogging but we got to make sure we make him look good because he's black we got to make sure that we paint him in a positive light you still see where those issues of race come into play and those issues of prejudgment and and all those things are problematic and we got to get, like, that's the next step. That That's what we got to get past. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's something that's been a burden of mine forever, man. I'm just going to unload it right quick. Listen, man, we got to stop associating certain qualities with white, right? When we do, <laughs> yeah. like, I'm, you know, I've been well-spoken for a long time. I like books. I like the English language. I like to speak right, the, the correct way, okay? Mm -hmm. And... I can't tell you how many people on my side, black people who I look like, who I love, who I celebrate their beauty for, for being black, look at me and say, I'm not black enough. Why? Because I speak well. Mm -hmm. That's something we have to, we have to cut that out, man, because that creates a, a situation where we are in ourselves admitting that white is associated with correctness and black is, is not. Oh yeah. And I, I'm so so frustrated that when 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 your boy 
when Donald Trump tweeted out after all the situation when we were looting and rioting and things like that, he, he tweeted out, he said, thugs. He used the word thugs and he did it in all capitals. Yeah. And what happened? The black community embraced that word as their own. They immediately went after him. They called him racist for saying the word thugs because they associated with him. Now, I'm not going to read into Trump's mind. There's a good chance that when he said it, he was thinking black people. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that he wasn't. What I'm saying is, why are we doing it? Let him use the word and let us assume that's what he meant. But let us not accept that word as who we are. You know, the thugs are thugs and the thugs have all sorts of colors. Black people are not thugs inherently. Mm-hmm. We should, when he said thugs, we should not have associated ourselves with that word. And I think we do those types of things often. What, what do you think about that? Oh, well, I mean, I think with Trump, I think the reality is we, most people see what his, you know, it's always dangerous, but I think most people see what his intention is. Like, we, we got years of history here of Black people being called thugs, and, you know, that label isn't usually used for all white situations, right? Um, so, I mean, I, my, that's my thought on what that was. But, um, you know, look, self-hate is is a deep thing. Self-hate and um feeling of inferiority, you know, black inferiority is a real thing. Um, you know, that's why there's colorism within the black community. And that's not just in America, that's everywhere. Like we talk about black and brown <laughs> at a conversation um, early today, actually. And, you know, for me, it's interesting because I, I have a diverse group of friends, like my church diverse, like I got Hispanic and Mexican family and people that I love to death. Um, and in general, I'm all for, you know, like the kind of black and brown coalition. However, we were talking about the fact that there is racism embedded in all sorts of other minority communities. And you look all throughout South America, you know, if you look at the average person in Brazil, a lot of times they look like you and I, right? But if you look at the people in power, they are they look they look like Europeans, you know? Um, so colorism is a thing through anywhere where there are people of African descent. It's all over the world because white is associated with bright. And so even, you know, in the example you gave, I mean, that's, it, it, it sucks and we, need, we do need to move on from there, but it's embedded. I mean, this is embedded from the times when, uh, you know, slaves weren't allowed to read. And if, you know, the, the black people that did read were wealthy and they, you know, they were, or they were either wealthy or they were the house Negro. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like from literally since we've been in this country, we've been taught, to pit against each other you know we've been taught to say look if you are if you're well, part of the colorism if you're light-skinned it's because you got some of master's blood in you yeah. oftentimes yeah. you know what i mean and so usually are getting treated better if yeah. you speak if you speak well and educated you know that means you're better than than us here like it's it's a whole deep psychological thing and so i agree we do need to do better and we do need to start dismantling those things purposefully. Cause that's the thing. If we're not purposeful about it, it's just there, right? Colorism is just there. If we're not purposeful and by purposeful, as you kind of talked about, alluded to earlier about teaching kids, the reality of the situation and also how to overcome those things. Mm-hmm. If we're not purposefully teaching kids at a young age, not just that, Hey, black and white is okay. People are of other races or fine. We're all equal, but even within our community, Hey, our color doesn't matter. Right? Your, your vocal inflections don't matter. It's like, it's okay. We end up with these things because a lot of people have negative experiences. 
Like, you know, you got people in the hood and it's like, oh, so somebody come around talking, speaking properly, and that's going to trigger them like their, their cousin from Connecticut <laughs> that looked down on Because we do know that the reality is there's a lot of black folks where they make a little bit of money, they, go, they, they move and they look down on other black people. Like, that happens, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'm writing a little book right now, and one of my chapters is talking about, um, all, you know, the concept that all skin folk ain't your kin folk. Mm-hmm. Not, we all ain't all happy for each other, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things, and you see that everywhere, too. It's not just unique to black America. Yeah. Any any society where there's an underclass, or if, especially if it's based on race, you see that kind of infighting, that whole crabs in a bucket, or crabs in a barrel kind of mentality where we're picking at each other about things that ultimately don't matter. So I mm-hmm. agree. I think we got to be purposeful, though. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, I don't think white people really burden themselves necessarily with the plight of um, other white people in a in a different class than them. Oh, that's statistically proven, by the way. Yeah. That you know, white people view themselves as individuals and black people view, view themselves as part of a group. Like, yes. that's, a, that's a studied fact. And I don't know how I feel about that. I'm not trying to take that down. I mean, if I'm in the, you know, if I'm in the grocery store, you know, you know, the nod or the, you know, <laughs> that's, that's there. And I, I, I kind of appreciate that. because I, You know, the, we do have something in common. We have, do have a shared struggle that is, is worth acknowledging. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that, that I'm, I should apologize. Like, I don't want to, like, not, not verbally, nor with my demeanor. Do I want to apologize for making good decisions? Mm-hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to feel a sense of, you know, oh, let me let me talk a certain way, or let me act a certain way, or let me dress a certain way, or let me uh, appease a certain mentality when I'm around you, because I don't want you to uh, be upset with me right. being successful. That's something that I I can remember as plain as day. Let me show you this story really quick. Yeah. So. I told you about my origins in Baltimore, but you know, then my parents got divorced. And so with my parents split up, I ended up living in a bunch of different places. So one of them was, um, was a, a Midwest town called Gohanna, Ohio. Okay. Gohanna, Ohio is, I would say like a neighborville, you know, just a very mm-hmm. kind of sedity, kind of suburban, like Midwest <laughs> suburban area, right? We were the black family in the community. And, uh, and when I was, I was in sixth grade at the time and they gave me a book to read and I could read the book, right? Nothing to it. I could read the book the same way anybody else could read the book, right? Uh-huh. Give me the words, I'll read it. And you know, like you sit in a circle and they would say, okay, you read, then you read, you read. Get to me, no big deal, I read. Now later- Jaws hit the floor. <laughs> so Jaws hit the floor. <laughs> no, not, not, no, no, no. That's what I'm saying, not in Ohio. In Ohio around all the white people, they were just like, okay. Let's give me When I get to Rhode Island, okay, I live in Providence, Rhode Island, for seventh grade, and this is in this is the most project-ridden area I've ever lived in. This is I lived in the projects, right? This is like the mm-hmm. lowest of the low. And I went to a school, and they did the same thing: put everybody in a circle. They were reading a third-grade book. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'm in seventh grade. They're reading a third grade book and they were struggling to read it. Mm-hmm. Think about it because it's, it's a sign of, of that kind of um, different race that we're running. Mm-hmm. So these all black kids and I'm sitting there and they're reading this third grade book and they're struggling to read it and then they get it to me and I just fly through the page. 
And then the jaws dropped. All the white teachers were like, mm. the, one, the one white teacher was in the circle said, hold on, stop, don't do it. She went to go get other teachers. You know what I mean? She wanted all the teachers in the school to come in and hear this black kid who could actually read. They brought in a fourth grade book. They brought in a fifth grade book. They brought in, they kept bringing in books to see how much I could do. That sticks with me to this day. It's in here all the time. And I think about that's how different it is to educate at one, at one part of our country than another. Mm-hmm. Just, I'm a normal kid in a white area. I'm some sort of savant in the black area. That's sad. It shouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the progress by which a third grade reads should be brought up with and all the same. So, you know, um, that story is something I always just like to tell people to give their perspective of why I get so frustrated with um, with a lack of emphasis on education. Because it's heavy. Yeah. No, that that's a that's a definitely a, a good anecdote and yeah, I mean, having taught in the the in the cities, and like I know that that that's a whole nother show because there's a lot of people that have a lot of different thoughts and theories about why that is, from you know parental involvement to expectation levels to all sort. I mean, you're in education, <laughs> also you you've heard all of these different things. So, um, but yeah, that that's why. Like I, that reminds me of it's kind of similar. Um, actually, no, on on the opposite into the scale uh, my godfather i always remember my godfather told me this and i've actually heard this from other folks in different kind of avenues as well but i remember, still remember my godfather told me he's from he grew up in chicago um he was a straight a student honor roll student um all his life right graduated high school i don't remember if he i don't remember exactly what he was he was close to the top of his class i don't remember if he was actually valedictorian or not this is like 10 years ago he told me this but basically i know he was an honor roll excellent student Went to school at a little podunk college in middle of nowhere, Iowa, right? <laughs> um, this is where he met my father, actually. And they put him in basically remedial classes for his first year. Like kind of like that bridge, that version of the bridge program back in the um, late 70s, early 80s or whatever, right? So it's kind of like he had done everything that was asked of him, done it at a high level. And he gets to this little school nothing school it's not an ivy league school or anything like that mm-hmm. and it's like yeah no whatever cps taught you <laughs> you're here we need you to get <laughs> five mm-hmm. steps up here before you can catch up to the rest of these kids so that's just a little you know i'll tell you something about the level of expectation mm-hmm. um the level of challenging that is that is done and again there's a lot there, there's a lot of factors in there um yeah and i, I tell off towards the end and i kind of forgot what the main point i was trying to make with that story is that what ended up happening was some of the, the black kids in that class were angry with me. Mm-hmm. And then I had to defend myself. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I know I can fight. I can fight because I have been in fights. <laughs> but what happened was then I ended up subconsciously starting to apologize. Mm-hmm. Came you know what I mean? Yeah. And, I, and I know I'm not the only black person that, that experiences that. If you're in a tough enough neighborhood, you got to keep your hand down. Mm-hmm. If you know the answer, keep your hand down. Or they will, you know what I'm saying? They will come after you. Right. We got to cut that out, man. That's us doing that to us. You know? Mm-hmm. That, don't, I just don't buy that that's anybody else doing that to us. That's us saying, how dare you be smart? How dare you uh, try to act better than me? That's frustrating. No, the answer is I'm going to stay being 
where I'm at, but I'm going to not judge you. And I'm going to try to bring you with me. And I, I think so much of that is environmental and a lot of that's pain, you know, it's, it's kids being jealous and um, mm -hmm. like cause my story, my story is different. It's not a, near as interested as yours, but like I was essentially kind of booted out of the school when I was in first grade because I guess I was acting up. But like my parents put me in private school from second grade on. Now, mm -hmm. I didn't go to Naperville private school. You know, I didn't go to the fancy private school. I went to the city private school, you know, yeah. like, um, you know, through middle schools, the local Catholic schools where, you know, it's private school, but it's affordable. It's working class. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, my schools were diverse. I had black kids, white kids, Asian kids, all of that. Right. And so I always say, because I was always in, in these schools where there was some level of involvement or whatever, like I, that's something that I never experienced, even though I always got good grades. Like even when I was in high school, you know, like, amongst my boys, even though we play sports, we was athletes, all of that, it was never cool to get, like, if you was failing something, it was like, dude, what did you do? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Now, part of that is the school didn't allow that, but, like, I was around a whole bunch of black people, and that was never something that was celebrated. Like, being unintelligent wasn't celebrated. Nobody knocked you if you got good grades. Like, my boy, like, some of my people still bring up from time to time, I won an award in, like, I think my sophomore year, because I got the highest score on our pre-ACT. I didn't, somehow that didn't translate to the ACT itself. I didn't get the highest score there. I did okay. But but point is, it's like my experience in, in a different environment was so much different. That's why I always go back to like, yes, so I'm, I'm in agreement with you that we got to do better. But I think a, lar a large part of when people have those experiences is yours, it depends on that environment. Because it's possible if there, there might have been a kid at a, a private school similar to mine uh, somewhere there in Providence, Rhode Island, you know, another black kid that was doing, that did well in school. He could read and all that. And nobody said nothing to him. The black kids were like, okay, cool. You know what I mean? Because you have an expectation of success there. Or there's a, there's an expert. We can read too, you know, so we're not mad at you for being able to read. And so, I, it, you know, we're just kind of riffing and talking right now. But, um, but yeah, those, those are always interesting so i appreciate you sharing that that story because i know a lot of people do deal with that yeah yeah and, and yeah look you'll see it's not the black community is not is not alone there i mean you, you'll see that in public school in general you know just in some public schools or some poor poor education systems you'll you'll see that or you, you know peer pressure and different things i mean i'm not i'm not saying that's unique only to the black experience but i am just trying to call us out because again but we can't afford to, we can't afford to have those things holding us back right like as a as a people like and again as you mentioned before because we are seen as by society as a group yeah. and we do often and just because of that we often have to think as a larger group right or just as, as we are part of a group right those things are more detrimental to a, a child like yourself or, or any other young black kid than you know a white kid that gets it there are probably white people that dealt with a similar thing and they never once think about it as a white community type thing. <laughs> you know what i mean it's just like this is what i experienced and i overcame it it's not a it's not a communal we have to do better, right? Because they have that luxury of being judged by just themselves and their action. Right. We don't have that luxury. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Kellen, and this has been a great decision for me. What I would say as sort of a 
you know, closing argument, the kind of thing that I would want people to, you know, we talk about a lot today. So you might, <laughs> yeah. you know, whoever's listening might, you know, catch my message here, I confused you here, there. But if I could leave you with any thought, it would be this. With that. I believe that this, this moment right now is perhaps the most important moment in the history of the African American. I think this is a massive, massive time where we finally have the attention of powerful people, of normal people, of poor people. Everyone is now looking at us. We are on the forefront of everyone's television. We took over the, the pandemic for, for 10 days. And it is very important that we do this responsibly with two messages, not one. I think if we have only a message right now that is aimed at others, mm -hmm. we're gonna miss a boat here. And we're going to, this is gonna be a, a moment, not a movement. This will be something that goes and, and then leaves and then we kind of get back to the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But if we can use this moment to turn into a movement where we ask them to do better, we ask them to truly keep their word, this contract that we're supposed to have as Americans, but we all have the same opportunities. Mm -hmm. Pushing for reform, and we ask them to treat us fairly. Then we must also turn around and ask ourselves to get over this thing, to see that the game, it may be rigged, but we gotta run it. Mm -hmm. We can't sit on our hands. We can't keep blaming the society. We can't keep blaming the system. We can't keep asking them to do things we won't do when it comes to educating our youth, when it comes to not hating ourselves, when it comes to not um, associating white with right. Um, we have work to do. And anybody who only wants to talk about one side of this is on the wrong side of history. So if I talk to a white person and they only want to talk to me about black decisions, they are on the wrong side of history. And if I talk to a black person and they only want to talk to me about Black Lives Matter and the police are the, are the enemy, they're on the wrong side of history. But if we can have two conversations and have both people aimed at always getting better, then, then I'm happy because that's who my soul is and that's what I want to leave everybody with. Everybody look at themselves and let's all get better together. AG Reason. <laughs> <laughs> No, nah, yeah, um, yeah, we could definitely, we could definitely leave it at that because we've been out here spitting at y'all for almost two hours, which is, you know, um, if you if you're listening, yeah. listen to this, man, you got to listen, brother, because my mind gonna cut me off at the forty five minutes. I could promise you. Hey, you know, maybe we'll find a way to do part one, part two, or something like that, or you know, maybe people can listen to this on a particularly long jog or something like that. But, um, but no, I appreciate, I appreciate you for the conversation. Um, it is always good being able to speak to uh, folks of intelligence <laughs> and conscious about these things because there are a lot of people that don't have uh, either of those uh, that are out there engaged in the conversation and it gives me headaches. <laughs> so, um, so now I appreciate you. Um, and yeah, to my wild, wild world folks, appreciate y'all being here. Like, subscribe, all of that good stuff. Uh, to to the jumping through hoop folks, I appreciate y'all. Let me uh, <laughs> let me share some space with your man Rick here. So so thank you very much. We appreciate. It. Yeah, man, I got stronger today, man. You you spit some facts that I needed to hear, and I appreciate it, man. It was a good combo, and um, you know, uh, I know we did so much race stuff, man. But we gotta 
we'll maybe we'll come back next week and do some things, uh, talk about just what it means to be a dad and the food thing. Let's talk about trying to get you to the next level. Put that on the way. Oh, we can definitely do that. I am, uh, I'm ready. We, uh, I can use a little bit of levity in my life right now. So, so it don't always got to be heavy. So yeah, let, let's make it happen. All right, brother. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Wild Wild World Show. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Follow us on Twitter at Kingdom X Dreams and learn more at KingdomDreamer.com.